Our scripture reading this morning is from the second chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Would you please stand for the reading of scripture? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And may God add his richest blessing to the reading of this portion of his holy word. Will you pray with me, please? Again, our Father... We're thankful that you've spoken to us. You've spoken to us by your prophets. You have spoken to us by your Son. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit, we would see and hear him in spite of the inability and sin of the preacher. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Be seated, please. Emmanuel, God with us, part two. What Christmas is all about is God becoming one of us, fully human without ceasing to be God. Last week we looked at the divine nature of Jesus Christ, the fact that He is nothing less than God Almighty. And today we'll look at his human nature. I don't know how one person can be both God and man at the same time. Think about it. You know the story. Jesus and his disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. A great storm comes up. The boat's churning in the water. Waves are breaking over the side. Water is flooding in to the boat and the disciples are terrified. What about Jesus? He's in the stern of the boat, fast asleep on a cushion. You'd have to be pretty tired to sleep through that. And God never gets tired. In fact, Psalm 121 says that the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. Jesus is doing something God cannot do. Yes, there are some things God cannot do. The Bible says it is impossible for God to lie. Yes, the Bible says with God all things are possible, but there are some things it is impossible for God to do, and if you think that's a contradiction, all I can say is you don't have a lick of common sense in your brain. 
And it is impossible for God to get tired and fall asleep. Jesus is fast asleep. He's sleeping through a violent storm. In other words, Jesus is war slam out. Can't get any more human than that. They go wake him up. Jesus awoke, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And the disciples were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's something a man cannot do. A man cannot tell a storm to go away or the sea to calm down. Well, he can tell it, but nothing's going to happen. Let me read you from Psalm 89. It says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto Thee, or to Thy faithfulness round about Thee? Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. That's what God does. He rules the waves, the storm, and stills the sea. So now let's put this together. There's a raging storm. Jesus is asleep in the boat. God does not sleep. God cannot sleep. And then they wake Jesus up and He rules the raging of the sea and stills the waves by the word of His mouth. He does what only God can do. One person, God and man at the same time. I don't know how it could be, but it clearly is. Now let's get back to the text. This passage before us is about the humanity of Jesus. So in our remaining time, let's look at this passage and think together about Jesus' humanity. First, in this passage, you see the coming of Christ. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise himself partook of the same things. Now, now, who are these children it mentions in verse 14? Well, if you look up at uh, verse 13, you'll see it's the children the Father gave to be the brothers of the Son. Now, that sounds complicated. But if you go back sometime and read over Hebrews chapter 2, you'll see that God the Father intended to bring many sons to be with Him in glory. That's what God wanted. In other words, God, the Father, wanted to adopt a bunch of children. And the Father gets these children by giving them to His Son, the Lord Jesus. And it says in there that Jesus 
is not ashamed to call them his brothers. And he saves them, making them children of the Father. So now, it says, since the children share in flesh and blood, since the people Jesus came to save, since the people the Father sent Jesus to save are made of flesh and blood, Jesus himself took the same flesh and blood. I cannot stress to you adequately how important it is to believe that Jesus became fully human. He took human flesh and blood. We absolutely must believe that. And Jesus is still fully human. Right now on the throne of God, there sits a man. He is a resurrected, glorified, exalted man to be sure, but he is a man, fully man. Acts 17 and verse 31, the Apostle Paul says that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. Of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. On the last day, judgment day, the end of the world, at least the end of the world as we know it, we will stand before a man. You remember when he rose from the dead, he told doubting Thomas to reach out and touch the wounds in his hands and side. Now he was different. He was glorified. He could then pass through locked doors after he was raised, but he was still a man. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus had risen from the dead, He appeared to His disciples and they were frightened. They thought they'd seen a ghost. And Jesus said to them in Luke 24 and verse 39, See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took and ate it before them. Authorized Bible. The King James Bible says that when he asked them for something to eat, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. And you know I'm a dinosaur. I'm a 37 going on 102 year old dinosaur. So I think he ate fish and honeycomb because that's what the King James Bible said. And that's what my grandma raised me on. But the point is... He could eat in His current, resurrected, glorified, incorruptible state. He can still eat. 
He still has flesh and bones. He still has hands and feet. Now let me show you how, how important it is that we believe this. I am not exaggerating the importance of this. Turn to 1 John. Go ahead, turn. I, I want you to see I am not making this up. The last book of the Bible is Revelation, and then come back and you're in Jude, and, and then 3rd, 2nd, and finally to 1 John. Those little books are just about a page apiece. 1 John chapter 4, and look at verse 2. First John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. This is how you know you belong to God. Now don't leave 1 John yet. You confess, if you belong to God, you confess that Jesus is come in the flesh. If you do not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, John says you have the spirit of Antichrist. That's what it says. Now while you're there, turn a page ahead to the tiny book of 2 John. 2 John has only one chapter. Look at verse 7. I'm telling you, I'm not making this up. 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. If you don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, you are a deceiver and antichrist. That's why I made you turn. I want you to know I'm not trying to be obnoxious. I'm telling you what the Bible says. And it's as plain as the nose on your face. You look at this passage and you see the coming of Christ. Now we'll be back on the text for the rest of the morning. Secondly, in this passage, you see the destruction of the devil. Let's read all of verse 14 now. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He took the flesh and blood, he became human so that he could die. And you see, through his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's not saying the devil has been annihilated. He still exists. He roams the earth like a roaring lion. But through his death, the Lord Jesus defeated the devil and sealed his final doom. How did the death of Jesus defeat the devil? Look at verse 17. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is how the death of Jesus defeated the devil. This is why he had to become like us, his brothers and sisters, in every respect. Why? Verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Say, I don't know what propitiation means. Oh, it's very simple. A propitiation is something that makes propitious. See, that's it. It's not complicated at all. Well, to propitiate someone or to make someone propitious means to make them stop being angry. Maybe you sent your wife flowers after an argument. You hope, maybe you're hoping against hope, but you hope the flowers will propitiate her and move you from an unfavorable to a favorable position. Last week, I gave you an illustration. I said that if Ron Wallace was offensive and made Jimmy Killian mad, Jim Young could not forgive Ron Wallace on behalf of Jimmy Key. But what Jim could do is go to Jimmy and try to propitiate him. Help him not to be so angry at Ron anymore. And you see, we are under the wrath of God for our sins. That is what we deserve. And by dying for our sins, Jesus completely absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf so that we may, in time, by faith in Him, come out from under the wrath of God and instead come into His fatherly pleasure and approval. Now, I feel I must add this. I hope I don't make it any more confusing than it already is. But we must remember that the death of Jesus did not change God. It's not as though God hated us and then by His death, Jesus persuaded God to love us. Oh, no. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God already loved us. Or he wouldn't have sent his son. But at any rate, it's through his propitiation that Jesus beat the devil. When I was in maybe the third or fourth grade, one day after school, when we were waiting to get picked up, a boy dared me to do something wrong, and no, I'm not going to tell you what it was. But of course, I did it. <laughs> what I did not know, but he did, was that the teacher behind me was watching every move I made. <laughs> and after I got caught, 
I had to write a sentence that I would not do that again 100 times and bring that to her the next morning before the bell rang. You see, he dared me knowing that I would get caught so that he could get a kick out of watching me go down in flames. And that's what the devil did to the entire human race through Adam. He tempted him to sin knowing he would go down and take us all down with him. And through sin we came under the wrath of God which finally culminates in hell. That's how the devil gets his pleasure. By watching people go down all the way to hell. But when Jesus died for our sins, he took the wrath and hell on himself and made propitiation so we can go free. And so by his death, Jesus destroyed the devil. You see the coming of Christ. You see the destruction of the devil. Thirdly in this passage, you see freedom from fear. Look at verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. A true believing child of God may have absolute certainty about his salvation. If you are trusting Jesus that he died for you, it's paid, paid in full. There is nothing left to add. It is done. You have nothing to fear, not even death. God won't put you in double jeopardy. If Jesus has paid for your sins, you cannot be punished. And so you don't need to be afraid of death, of what happens after you die. I've said before, I'm not afraid of dying. I know I'm going to heaven, but I'm scared to death I'm going to die doing something foolish. <laughs> you know, you get a terminal diagnosis. It's not saying that you have no fear of the suffering involved. But for the believer, there should be no fear of death on the order that Hamlet talked about. He said the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all. None of that for the true believer. True believers, free from the dread of something after death. 
Can you identify with the words of Hamlet? Does your conscience make you a coward when it comes to what there might be after death? You can be free. Because through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. And Jesus delivered those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So you see the coming of Christ, you see the destruction of the devil, you see freedom from fear, and fourthly and finally, in this passage we see a sympathetic Savior. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now here's another thing. God cannot be tempted to sin. But the man, Christ Jesus, was tempted. Fully man. He was without sin. He never once caved to temptation, but he was tempted. And he suffered. God cannot suffer. But the man, Christ Jesus, suffered. And so, verse 18 says he's able to help. He's able to comfort. He's able to sympathize with you. He can sympathize with you in temptation for he himself was tempted. He can sympathize with you in your suffering for he himself is suffering. He can sympathize with you in your pain for he himself is hurt. And when your time comes, He will sympathize with you in your death. For He Himself has died. He is Emmanuel, God with us. One of us, fully one of us. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.